This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Shinzen Young. Shinzen, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So I'm very excited to have this conversation about a, a book that uh, our mutual publisher, Sounds True, recently put out of yours, The Science of Enlightenment, um, a very, very, and fa- just a fantastic read. So let me... Give the audience a little background on you, and then we're going to dive right into this. There's a lot to explore. So, uh, Shinzen Young is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. Shinzen's interest in Asia began at the age of 14 when he decided to attend Japanese ethnic school in his native city of Los Angeles. After majoring in Asian languages at UCLA, he entered a PhD program in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. As a part of his thesis research, he lived as a Shingon, a Japanese Vajrayana monk, for three years at Mount Koya, Japan? That's correct, Koya. (laughs) It was then that he received the name Shinzen. Also during that time, he became friends with Father William Johnston, author of Christian Zen. Father Johnston helped broaden Shinzen's interests to include comparative world mysticism and the scientific study of meditative states. Upon returning to the United States, his academic interests shifted to the dialogue between Eastern meditation and Western science. Shinzen is known for his interactive, algorithmic approach to mindfulness and often uses mathematical metaphors to illustrate meditative phenomena. He is the author of The Science of Enlightenment, Natural Pain Relief, and numerous audio offerings. Shinzen leads residential retreats through North America. In 2006, he created the Home Practice Program. These phone-based mini-retreats are designed to make deep meditation practice accessible to anyone in the world, regardless of their location, health, situation, and time or financial constraints. You've been a busy man, my friend. Busy, busy. <laughs> well, busy, but I'm also old, 72 well, years old, so I've oh, had some time. I did yeah. not know that, and I would not have guessed it. Honestly, you don't yeah. look at it. Wow. So that yeah. speaks to meditation, I suppose. I, I come from a, another era, really. I, I'm fortunate that I've witnessed this transition. Uh, The United States I was born into and grew up in in the 1950s was a world where you could not imagine an influence from Asia coming in and having a mainstream impact. It simply was inconceivable in the United States when I was a little boy and Eisenhower was the president of the country. So I've actually, I'm what they call one of the pioneer generation. I've yeah. been able to see this inconceivable transition from Buddhist practice being uh, a weird marginal thing that a few hippies did yeah. to it becoming central to science, medicine, uh Corporate training, mm. even our military now uses uh, mindfulness. It's right, <laughs> our sports teams. I mean, who would have ever thunk it? Right. So yeah, I'm I'm old, <laughs> and the the uh, 
the fun part of that is I can remember a world where something like this happening would have been completely uh, off the off the charts, over the top, yeah. uh, and inconceivable, basically. So it seems to me I'm living in a miracle. I can only imagine, you know, some of the very important teachers and, and writers, for me personally, have been people like Ram Das and Alan Watts and, you know, people of, of your generation that, that were there with you as pioneers and reading the accounts of, you know, when these they were first bringing these practices back here to the to the West with them. And um, it's just always been exceptionally fascinating to me. So I can only uh, really begin to imagine really what your experience has been to be able to see that compared to, like you said, where we are now with the military using mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> yeah, Incredible. next year I'm going to the a Aberdeen Proving Ground to... Uh, <laughs> give them a presentation <laughs> to their, um, what do they call it? Uh, Future Soldiers Technology Program. <laughs> wow. Interesting times we're living in. So Definitely. Well, let's jump into the book. Um, I, I hate to start with the obvious, but I'm going to. Let's, let's just get this right out of the way. What is the science of enlightenment? And I know that's a big question. We're going to unpack the book, uh, explore a lot of what you write about. Let's, but if you can give an overview of the science of enlightenment. Well, it contains two very big words, science <clears throat> and enlightenment. Right. So broadly, it's about their relationship um, and the possibility that there can be a complementarity mm -hmm. where they reinforce each other. So my metaphor would be actually uh, a relationship with a significant other, right, uh, like uh, a marriage kind of situation. Right now, I would say that we've reached the serious petting stage. <laughs> they're, they're making out. They're definitely making out okay. big time. Um, uh, I don't think we've reached full-on uh, lovemaking yet, yeah. and, and certainly not the children. Mm. It's the possible children that I'm interested in. What might come out of the meeting of the best of the East and the best of the West uh, we we don't know. Uh, maybe nothing, or maybe something that becomes the dominant paradigm of this century and ch changes for the better the course of the planet. Yeah, that's my most pleasant thought. Um, we don't know for sure that will happen, but I would say it's not a ridiculous prospect that it could happen, sure. given everything that I know. Um, as a professional in both of these fields, mm. it's it's reasonable that it could happen. So basically, it brings together these two worlds and broadly talks about various types of relationships that can exist between uh, modern science and the contemplative disciplines. So one relationship is that... Uh, Neuroscience may give us new understandings about what happens in meditation and specifically what happens with enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And that may allow us to improve our methods and our technologies for bringing people to enlightenment. So it's possible that science may fertilize meditation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, more and more scientists are themselves practicing meditation. So the meditation practice makes them a better scientist and also a better human being. Right. So it has both professional and personal uh, impact. And the professional impact will be that uh, meditating scientists uh, at some point in their career may experience more power and creativity and uh, basic uh, science intelligence as the result of many years of meditation. So we can say that the arrow can go the other way and that the meditation can create um, more uh, effective scientists. Mm. So that, those are two possible relationships. I, I briefly talk about those. Right. Um, there's two other relationships. One is uh, something that's talked about quite a bit. I go into it a little bit which is the fact that um, uh, some of the things that uh, successful contemplatives report sound a lot like things that come up in science. Mm. Um, 
often metaphors with quantum physics and so forth are brought up. But there's actually equally compelling uh, metaphors with even 19th century physics, uh, thermodynamics, and even going back to Newton, really. Um, uh, I, I could draw parallels between certain things in classical uh, 17th century physics uh, that have seemed to have interesting parallels with the reports of mystics, meditators, and so forth. So <clears throat> an interesting question is, is this just a coincidence, which is a possibility? Sure. Or uh, <clears throat> does it point to something else? Does it point to a convergence uh, Are are the mystics and the uh, uh, the mathematically oriented physicists are they looking at something from different angles, uh, and therefore coming up with similar descriptions, or is it just a coincidence? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people will claim, I think, irresponsibly, that well, yes, of course, it's obvious this, they're these are the same thing because they sound so similar. But I'm not of that camp. I'm actually rather skeptical. I think it's an important question and a question that we will probably have the answer to uh, in this century or within a few centuries. Mm. And if I had to make a guess, my guess would be it's not a coincidence. Mm. Okay. But, but that's just a guess. Um, I, I get a little bit um, frustrated with people that um, sort of uh, offhandedly say, well, of course, because in quantum physics, uh, uh, you can have something coming from nothing due to uh, uncertainty um, principles and uh, uh, the wave nature of reality, okay? And if you talk to a Zen master, they might say, when you let go of the need to understand, so you have equanimity with uncertainty, you'll be able to see how impermanence manifests a pine tree or a flower or yourself from emptiness. Well, those sound like really similar, right? Seems to be lining up. Um, Just because it sounds similar doesn't necessarily mean it's pointing to the same thing, but it could. So that's another area of possible intersection between science and broadly spirituality. Mm -hmm. The reports of uh, uh, adepts, uh, what they experience as the result of meditation, well, sort of sounds like some of these things uh, in math and physics. So why is that so? Um, that's an area of intersection. So we've covered three areas of intersection. One is, okay, well, science may improve meditation. Uh, on the other hand, meditation may improve science. Mm. And then there's the interesting question of, well, why do these descriptions sound similar? Um, the fourth area of intersection is actually mostly what the book is about, mm. which is, bringing what I would call the spirit of science into the teaching of meditation. So because I've spent all these years in the math and uh, uh, physics uh, area, it informs the way I teach meditation. Um, I bring a certain quality of precision, rigor, system, um, uh, and so forth, to the way that I organize uh, what is otherwise a traditional practice. Mm -hmm. A traditional practice is, uh, here's the cushion, here's what you're going to focus on, here's how you're going to focus, now go to it. Well, I still teach that way, um, but when I describe what I'm asking them to do, and uh, I classify the sensory categories I give them and explain the mechanisms behind the techniques, I tend to do it in a way that is going to sound a little bit like a physics or math book. (laughs) You do, but you know what? I have to say, that's what I really appreciate. And and the way you do, though, is you still make it accessible. You don't have to be brainy to comprehend what you're saying. I, and that's what I really appreciate. You know, the little formulas you give in here. I think I, I note one coming up that maybe I'll share and we can talk about. Um, but like you said, the word that you're using that I think is couldn't be more perfect is precision. 
you know, you leave no room for conjecture. It is this plus this equals this, do this, you know, or you give all the variables of possibility. Um, but again, in a way that really pretty much anyone can pick up, read and comprehend. So I appreciate the way you offer that. There's um, an interesting story. Um, I heard an interview uh, with a Japanese baseball player. Mm-hmm. I don't know um, if it was uh, Sadaharu O or some other player, but it was one of their top players. And they asked him to compare um, American baseball with Japanese baseball. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we invented baseball. We tend to think of it as our sport, but they're also very good at it. Yeah. So uh, he made an interesting comment, which was, um, well, the Americans are stronger, but I think we Japanese play a smarter game. Mm. Um, so if you want to learn the violin, for, if you want your kid to learn the violin, you have them use the Suzuki method. If you want your kid to excel in mathematics, you have them use the Kumon method. Uh, some of the best French cooks in the world are Japanese nationals. Mm. Okay, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. <laughs> By that I mean, if they can make improvements in our stuff, yeah, maybe we can make some improvements in their stuff. So my thing is, um, can we play a smarter game that will allow people, ordinary people that are living householders' lives uh, <clears throat> and aren't going to do intense practice or put themselves through the ordeals of monasticism and so forth, can we figure out a smarter game whereby they can get those industrial strength effects Mm. um, by being more precise and systematic and not having to rely uh, quite as much on the brute force algorithm, which Mm. is the sort of uh, old school um, samurai boot camp, uh, you know, Asian style practice. Yeah. Yeah. that's an idea. <laughs> it is, and it, and it and it works well. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciated it myself. I can honestly say I've never read it presented quite like this. Maybe there are other books I'm just not familiar with, but um, personally, you know, I, I'm a fan of Ken Wilber's, and I appreciate his approach. But even that, you know, it, it doesn't break it quite down in the very uh, very precise way that you do. So I, I really dig that. Um, cool. so let's explore some, some of, you know, I, <laughs> we could spend hours talking about this book. You cover so much in it. Um, but I wanted to start out with something you actually, uh, address right off the bat and you talk in, uh, right in the author's preface, you actually write in, and I'll use exactly what you wrote in it. You say a central notion of Buddhism is that there's not a thing inside us called the self. One way to express that is to say that we are a colony of subpersonalities. And each of these subpersonalities is, in fact, not a noun, but a verb, a doing. So often on the show, things such as uh, non-duality come up or no self come up. And, uh, and I would love to hear you elaborate a bit more on that and talk a bit about that, these, these sub-colonies of personality. And, and you, of course, write about it in the book, but if you don't mind chatting a little bit about sure, it. Sure, because it's different uh, hearing the, um, you know, the... Uh, um, the live words right. as opposed to the reading. Right. So, um, um, I'll tell you another story. I, right. uh, a number of years ago, we um, had a big meeting of the Western Buddhist teachers. Uh, all, all your, uh, uh, all your icons would have been there, right? <laughs> we have these meetings from time to time. Yeah. Um, where people that are full-time teachers of uh, Buddhist practice um, get together and we just sort of have like a convention, Mm -hmm. right? And like any other, it's a professional convention, (laughs) Dharma teachers. Um, So uh, there's presentations and then there's like breakout groups where we, uh, where we discuss things. So, um, you get to choose what breakout groups you're going to go to. So I saw uh, one of the breakout groups was how do you, uh, how do you deal with the issue of enlightenment? So I interpreted that to mean, Oh, how do you as a teacher bring people to enlightenment? Right. Um, So it's like, Oh, cool. Okay. I'll talk about what I do. But it turned out actually that 
that wasn't really what the topic was about. After I was at this meeting for a little while, I realized that's not what everyone else was there to discuss. <laughs> what everyone else was, or most of the other people were there to discuss is, um, how do you bring up the possibility of enlightenment without making people get all concerned and judgmental about, about themselves because they're not enlightened yet? <laughs> how do you politically correctly introduce a notion that maybe you're not quite there yet without mm -hmm. marginalizing people or playing into their natural tendency to um, judge and denigrate themselves. Sure. That's what the topic was. How do you, uh, um, <clears throat> so I never got a chance to say, well, actually, if you want to know, here's what I do uh, to, <laughs> uh, so I'll describe to you um, to make things tangible how I would go about showing someone Wonderful. the truth of, quote, no self in terms of a procedure. Great. If if you ask uh, for that, I would say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to give you some well-defined sensory categories and then I'm going to give you a procedure for monitoring those categories. So here are the three categories, mental image, which will define as visual thinking. So when you're having memory, plan, fantasy, that kind of thing, you see people, places, objects, albeit probably ill-defined and in a ghostly way, um, but you get some impression of form of past or your current surroundings or a fantasy or the future. So that's visual thought. So we'll call that a mental image. Um, <clears throat> or to have a sort of quick way to label it, we'll... Uh, uh, we'll just say C. I'm going to have you say out loud the word C every time you have a mental image. But we'll only use the word C to refer to visual thought, not external sights or things like that. Okay. But we'll have a simple label. And for now, we'll define C to mean I'm having a mental experience that is visual. Now, most people are also aware that they have mental experience that's auditory. They hear self-talk, they have conversations, monologues, dialogues, arguments. Nowadays, a lot of people are into that because politics is in the news. Oh, so sure. pe all my friends are arguing with the opposition in their head, okay? <laughs> so <clears throat> they see a mental image of the person that they're arguing with or the candidate they're arguing with. And then they're rebutting that person's statements in their head. Okay, and they know which voice is theirs and which voice is the other person's. So that's auditory thinking. So let's label that here. And we'll just for now ignore external sounds. Uh, so here we'll just refer to mental talk. Um, so if you ask most people where they experience most of their mental images, they'll sort of point to an area in front of, behind their eyes. It's sort of roughly anterior, up and sort of around here. Sure. That's where I see my mental images. If you ask them, where do you hear your mental talk? Most people will sort of point to this kind of area in the head at the ears. Mm -hmm. So what this tells us is, is that not only is thought uh, tangible in terms of it being visual and auditory, like the external world is tangible because you can see it and hear it. Not only is it sensorially tangible, but it also sort of has location. Okay. The visual part of thought tends to be sort of anterior. Mm. The auditory part of thought tends to be posterior relative to that in the head at the ears. So this gives this starts to make thinking process tangible. It has a sen it has sensory qualities and even has a likely location. Mm. And then we're going to uh, define a uh, a third sensory category which will be uh, body sensations that are obviously emotional to that individual. Um, so we'll ignore just physical sensations, but if you're experiencing uh, an emotion like anger, fear, sadness, embarrassment, impatience, disgust, interest, joy, love, gratitude, humor, smile, you're having, or any combination of those, if you're having an emotion um, that probably will involve some thought, but it may involve uh, 
a body sensation. Mm. So if you have a body sensation that to you in that moment is obviously emotional in nature, then let's label that feel. Other times we might use feel more broadly for anything in the body, but for now we're going to say we'll only use the word feel for what is obviously emotional. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now, giving people that category is my way of sensitizing them to when the emotional brain activates. You're probably aware that there's something called the limbic system right. uh, with, uh, within the brain, and there are certain regions of the brain and certain connectors uh, that constitute that system. And that's believed to be the physical basis of emotion. Right. Um, so uh, by giving people the category uh, emotional body sensation, I'm uh, training them to detect when that part of the brain activates. Also, by giving them the category of mental image versus mental talk, I'm training them to uh, detect when the uh, visual cortex versus the auditory cortex is activated. And uh, we have a pretty good idea where visual thought and auditory thought occur in the brain. And they're in rather different locations from each other and from the emotional body. So what I've done is I've brought well-known categories from uh, functional neuroanatomy and used them to create a technique that allows people to break the sense of self down into three natural elements, mm. visual thought, auditory thought, and body emotion. This would be my reworking of the more traditional Buddhist categories, such as the five aggregates, the four foundations, the four great elements. This is sort of the central, the central insight of the historical Buddha that was innovative uh, and as far as we know, historically new was this notion that you can take the sense of self and analyze it into natural elements. Now, divide and conquer, or untangle and be free, is one of the main mantras of science and math. When presented with a, a complex natural phenomenon or system, what a scientist or a mathematician will do is they'll say, well, what are the what are the basic elements here? What are the fundamental dimensions? What are the primes? What are the atoms out of which this system uh, is uh, constituted or from which? And then by <clears throat> clarifying those basic uh, variables and their relationships, suddenly we've got a handle on this thing that was so mysterious and intractable. So, well, guess what? The Buddha discovered that on his own about 2,500 years ago. Mm. But instead of applying it to the outer world or mathematical abstractions, as, as the West did in ancient Greece and then uh, later on in the Renaissance, instead of applying it to the outer nature, he applied it to the inner nature, to the sense of self. Mm. Um, but it's a method, okay? So we could say that, in a sense, um, the Buddha discovered an important part of the scientific method, which is break things down into their components, explore the interaction of those components, and you'll get a handle on things. Now, usually in science, you're doing that because you have some practical goal. In the case of the Buddha, he did that for the practical goal of relieving suffering right. or perhaps put in more modern language, I would say he did it for the goal of uh, achieving happiness independent of conditions. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> or another way to put it is achieving the maximal possible happiness that a human being can achieve. Yeah. Um, he called it relief from suffering, but nirvana is obviously more than just being anesthetized. It's something far beyond that. Um, so I would call it happiness independent of conditions. Mm -hmm. So that was his practical goal. 
But his method was untangle and be free. Now, he used more complicated categories than I'm using. I'm applying Occam's razor. So there's the Western influence right there. First of all, I've simplified the categories. Secondly, the categories are based on functional neuroanatomy. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. so that's science influencing the way I teach. Um, <clears throat> however, we're also using these categories at Harvard University and Vanderbilt and at Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. We're using these categories to study how the brain works. So remember, I said it goes both ways, right? right, right. So we're trying to improve neuroscience by using this taxonomy and then seeing if we can ferret out more details about the uh, neurophysiological basis of all of this. So anyway, to get back to your question, how do you, how do you make tangible and reasonable and relevant this rather obscure notion of no self? Right. Um, so <clears throat> I've given you now three sensory categories and I've uh, connected them with uh, locations, right? Right. Uh, because the emotional body is obviously down where your body is. So now <clears throat> we're going to make a, a binary simplification. We're going to say at any given instant, um, we're going to be aware of the presence or absence of visual thought. Mm -hmm. So that's two possibilities, right? At any given instant, you could have a visual thought or you couldn't. If you had a visual thought, we're going to say see, okay, out loud for starters. Now, <clears throat> at any given instant, you might have mental talk or not. If you have mental talk, I'm going to have you say hear out loud. Now, let's say that you have a mental image and mental talk at the same time. I'm going to have you say see here. Mm -hmm. to indicate that both systems are activated simultaneously. Let's say you have a mental image and it triggers a body emotion. What am I going to call that? Hear, feel. I, uh, a mental oh, mental image, image sorry, body... see, feel, correct? See, feel, see, exactly. Feel. Sorry, yes. And then you have mental talk and it triggers a body emotion or the body emotion builds until you have to talk about it to yourself. We're going to call that hear, feel, right, yes. okay? So if, if you've been doing the math on this, one possibility is see only, just having visual thought. One is hear, and another one is feel, just body emotion. So that's three possible single occurrences. We also named three possible paired occurrences. See, hear, if you have visual and auditory at the same time, see, feel, hear, feel. So by my math, we now have six logical possibilities. There are two more logical possibilities, two extremes. Can you guess what they are? The two more extremes. Yeah, well, there are two more possibilities, and they represent two opposite extremes. So we could have one activated, two activated. There's a total of three, so... You know, and I read this too, and of uh, course... Another possibility would be all three are active at once. There's, okay. That's an extreme. Right. <clears throat> Yet another or possibility is... none are activated. That's ah, a, you got right, it. Right, it goes right. offline. Right. Now, for people interested in math, they can look up what's called Pascal's Triangle, because there is math behind this. It's part of combinatorial, very elementary combinatorial mathematics. <clears throat> if you have a collection of, if you have a system of three variables and each one can be on or off, then you have two to the third equals eight possible states to that system. Mm. So, so far there's nothing weird uh, about what I've just described. Excuse me, I'm going to wet my whistle here. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's nothing esoteric about these categories. Right. They're well-defined. And as soon as you point them out to people, people recognize them. Yeah. It's What's interesting is um, <clears throat> from the time we acquire internal language, which I'm guessing is around two or three, yeah. until the time we die, so from the terrible twos 
until the moment of death. Every experience of subjective self will involve exactly one of those eight states. Mm. Every heaven or every hell that we will know from er very early childhood until um, uh, the moment of death, every internal heaven or hell will come about through some combination of see in, hear in, and feel in. And so will every will and moment of will or desire or judgment or reactivity. That's a pretty important system. Yet, no one gave you a user's manual. No one pointed out that these are the basic atoms of selfhood. Mm. Okay? No one pointed it out. And yet... That's the prison where everyone lives, and it's like that movie, The Matrix. Yeah, exactly. It's the worst kind of prison. You don't know you're imprisoned in it. Your identity is limited to your thoughts and emotions. I am my thoughts. I am my emotions. Now, a person might say, well, isn't your identity a little broader? Doesn't it also include the physical body? Yeah, we could expand the paradigm a little bit. But I like to apply Occam's razor. What's the minimal number of categories that I need in order to deconstruct selfhood Mm. and untangle and be free? Well, three will do the job. And three is a nice little number. So now I'm going to do something. Um, Oh, we need to have um, a label for the possibility that all three activate at the same time. Okay. And then we also need to have a label for the possibility that the system goes offline. Right. So let's call, if they all activate, we'll say all. And if the system goes offline, we'll say none. <laughs> okay? Yeah. That means there's no image, no talk, and no body emotion. Mm. So let me see. Let me do it. Feel. See. None. Feel none, none, feel all, see. Okay, you notice I just started on a dime and I was doing the technique that I just that I just described, right? So Anyone can do this. And when they do it, sometimes just one will activate, sometimes two will activate, sometimes all three will activate. And every now and again, that label none comes up. Mm. It can come up because something in the outside world expanded and the inner world turned off for a moment. Or it could come up uh, simply because this the system just spontaneously goes into a rest state. Mm. Um, now, you may have, have you done much with Zen yourself, done any Zen study or yeah, um, had any experience with that? Going back uh, to beginning probably with Alan Watts and then more recently teachers that are a bit more contemporary like uh, Brad Warner, um, I appreciate his style. He's kind of a younger-ish teacher. So, yes, um, practice of, of working with it. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's um, there are some Zen stories that run something like this. Um, uh, uh, a monk uh, goes to the master. Uh, uh, the monk's name is Kakusho, let's say. Kakusho goes to the master and says, Master, enlighten me. The master says, <laughs> See, I just enlightened you. Um, what does it mean? WTF? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> what was that all about? Well, in Zen, they don't explain things. I'm not a Zen teacher. I'm a mindfulness teacher, so I get to explain things. So... In that unexpected moment of hear out external sound, for just a moment, the internal system will turn off. Yeah. It just gets swamped 
by the sound. Now, it's a fleeting instant, but if that monk were alert enough to observing the inner system, um, he would have noticed that in that moment there was no self. There was only the sound. And he would have been the sound. He would have inhabited the sound rather than that inner system. So that's, there's a lot of Zen story. There's a lot more to Zen than what I just described. Of course, sure. But uh, <clears throat> some of the stories that involve out the uh, sort of the outer world expanding and the inner world contracting. Uh, <clears throat> a Zen master might say, when you see the flower, how do you become free from yourself? When you hear the temple bell, how do you experience God? When you <clears throat> chop vegetables, um, uh, how do you realize true love? Mm. They're ask, uh, it's just synonyms for the same thing. Right. Okay, It's asking for an experience <clears throat> where out expands, in contracts, and you notice it. And you notice that <clears throat> in that instant, if you had been doing mindfulness and labeling, that would have been a moment when you labeled none. Okay, meaning there was no activation in the inner system. Now, one way to look at that experience is that you had an experience of no self. Hmm. Another way to look at that experience is that you had an experience of oneness of inside and outside, which is one dimension of non-dual. There are other dimensions sure. to non-dual, but that's one of the dimensions. So <clears throat> here's a pretty straightforward, well-defined mechanism whereby a person can uh, notice that the self is not a constant thing. When you, if you label it, uh, the next time you get like something really gets your goat, mm. of course, that's bad because something's got your goat. Right. But <clears throat> the, the possible silver lining for that is that in most cases, when something really gets to us, um, you'll be able to see that all three systems go online. Mental image, mental talk, and body emotion. All You'd be labeling all. So my personal label in my life for I'm freaking out now is all, all, all. Because... <laughs> I see, I see the images, I hear the yada da yada da, and then my emotional body, bang, bang, bang. Mm. So <clears throat> that would be the beginning, a tangible beginning of understanding no self. Mm. Okay, you'd be able to see act, um, spontaneous mo moments when the self wasn't there. And that would show you that it was not an abiding entity. Right. Also, you notice that when you label all, there would be a much stronger sense of self. But if only two are active, less of a sense of self. If only one is active, even less. Right. And if none of them are active, no sense of self at all. So what does that show us? Well, something that expands and contracts as a function of time, that's a wave. Right. Not a thing. So <clears throat> that would be the beginning, but that is not the end of uh, the experience of no self. That's just an initial stage. Mm -hmm. I could describe to you with this same technique several deeper experiences of no self that would arise as a result of using these categories. But at least at one level, I've made it somewhat understandable. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's wonderful for our intents and purposes here today. Very, uh, very accessible in that way, because I know it's something that a lot of people have a difficult time understanding, you know, because what do you mean, no self? I'm thinking right now, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm aware, yada, yada. And I understand that side of it, too, because like you said, it's been conditioned. By the time we're two or three years old, it's a wrap. You know, it was over before it began for us. We have our names and we know me and we know you and mine and yours and you know duality is set in motion and but anyways uh, that is a really wonderful way of beginning to help people to comprehend it so thank you for sharing that very much sure <laughs> um 
so much more I want to cover. I know we've got about 15 minutes left. Um, trying to think what, what, what we could fit in here. Um, to go along with no self, um, I mean, it's a different teaching, but I also appreciate later on in the book, you talk about the many faces of impermanence. And I think that would maybe be a nice, uh, the uh, no self segue into impermanence. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's actually a natural, a natural segue. Yeah. Uh, that's the next step. Right. So the, f- the first step is you use these categories and you'll notice that even as a beginning meditator, you will occasionally have experiences where that system goes offline. Right. Maybe when you hear a sound or you have a big pain, so the pain expands and it turns off the inner system. That's nature trying to set you free. So what comes next? Well, it turns out that the tangling of the inner see, hear, feel is fractal. It's not just at one scale. There's subtle see in inside the feel in. And inside that is a subtler here in. Mm-hmm. So that it's like uh, many, many diameters of uh, thread all tangled together. So fully untangling those strands actually takes quite a while. But when you finally get the, the skein fully untangled, and it's just combinations of inner see, hear, feel, um, the sense of... Uh, you might say the mesh of the prison bars gets opened wide enough that you can step out now. Mm. So even when the system is fully activated, okay, uh, and you're, you're going on all three cylinders, so to speak, if they're separated out enough, it still will not imprison you. So one le- level of no self is you notice, oh, there are times when there's no self, okay? But another level of no self is the system activates, perhaps intensely, but your habitual clarity is so great that it never tangles. And so even when it's intensely active, um, you're not trapped. And that, again, goes to these Zen stories of, um, yeah, like... uh, 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 a monk at, might ask the master, uh, 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 how do I become free from anger? And the master goes, you're an idiot! <laughs> <laughs> You'll never get anywhere in your practice because you're just impossible. And I've been working with you for years. And the, like, the master like goes, like reams him a new ass, yeah. okay? And it's like, I mean, this is an even bigger what the fuck? How do I become free from anger? Yeah. Well, if you know what to tune into, you'll see that actually that master was not caught in that anger. That was liberated anger. Mm. Okay? And they'll usually show you that by being really intense and then just sort of turning away and talking to someone else and it's like it's not even happening and then coming back and it's happening and then turning away. It's not, well, someone that's Trapped in that, can't do that, okay? Um, So one way to show freedom from anger is you don't get angry. And that's no small attainment. Right. Another way is uh, you get angry, but it doesn't trap you. Now that's, I'm not going to say that's a bigger attainment. It's just another style. It's also a very dangerous style, by the way. I don't advocate it. Mm. In fact, I think it's, I think it's not a good style, hmm. but it is a style. Sure. It's easily misunderstood. I've been on the receiving end of it. I've been the beneficiary of it. But I think most people can't understand that. Sure. So, so the next level of no self is the system's fully activated, but it's so untangled and unblocked that you're not trapped in it. Okay? What What's next? Well... It turns out that if those strands are like red, green, and blue, they're colors. Well, what are colors? Well, colors are just different frequencies of electromagnetic energy. I'm making a metaphor here. So as your awareness soaks into the essence of what the inner see, hear, feel is, you realize that it's all made out of the same thing. 
vibrating bubbles of effervescent, uh, uh, effortless space, spontaneously expanding and contracting. And of course, if that's what inner see, hear, feel is made out of, that's also what outer see, hear, feel is made out of, our so-called perception of world. So now you're in the world of impermanence. Everything is vibrating energy because first you broke it down into its components and then you soaked into the components and you saw the underlying spirit energy Hmm. that now links you to the spirit energy of all of creation. And that's a deeper step. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Um, So... I think probably the last thing we have time to cover, and I really love this. You write about it later on in the book, and you call it the hap- or my happiest thought. And I really appreciate the way you end. It's, it's the final chapter of your book, and, and you mentioned how it's a phrase that you got from Albert Einstein. And, um, and so you list some concepts and some goals, and, and you talk a little bit about that as your happiest thought. So I figure today we could wrap up this conversation if you don't mind talking a little bit about what exactly your happiest thought is and why that is and what it entails so my happiest thought may be initially offensive to certain (laughs) traditionally minded people sure um so my happiest thought is that there are um things about enlightenment that are important and useful and that none of the great masters of the past knew about. Not even the Buddha. Mm. Um, Because none of the great masters of the past had a modern scientific perspective on things. Um, Traditional Buddhism says that the brain is... uh, bone marrow, essentially, that fills the skull. Um, and so is has no link whatsoever to consciousness. Mm. Um, and um, so, um, first of all, it's important to remember that I, I didn't say there are such things. My happiest thought is there may be such things. Sure, sure. Because if there are things about enlightenment that are important um, and useful and have not yet been discovered because they can only be discovered through science, then we may be able to make enlightenment available to orders of magnitude more people than it has been hitherto. Mm. So hitherto, in all cultures, in all times, it's been uh, the purview of a relatively small group of people um, relative to, you know, the masses. So it is possible that um, science may uncover, neuroscience, presumably, uh, will uncover uh, things about enlightenment that essentially democratize enlightenment. Mm. You and I have knowledge and power that would have been the envy of royalty in the past. Mm -hmm. The most powerful people um, of just a few centuries ago still had to piss in a pot and didn't, and half their women died in labor and they didn't know how most things worked. Um, just by virtue of living in the 21st century, we have power and knowledge that is beyond the, even the concepts of the most powerful uh, people of just a few centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Science has democratized certain aspects of power and knowledge to us. <clears throat> now, I know there are a lot of uh, inequalities still in the world. Of course. But hundreds of millions of people um, are more powerful and more comfortable than the aristocrats 
of the ancient world yeah. because science has made has democratized that. So it is it's pos- my happiest thought is that science will do that for the deepest reaches of spirituality, which are mystical experience or <clears throat> contemplative uh, uh, attainment of enlightenment. And um, that would change the course of human history. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's the solution to all our problems, sure. but it would certainly fundamentally change things. In other words, if... Um, if uh, even half of the population of the earth were stream enterers, which is the first level of enlightenment, mm-hmm. that's attainable by most people. Uh, people that come to my retreats and many other teachers in the West and in the East, we expect them eventually to at least become stream enterers. Sure. That means uh, knowledge of no self and oneness that's permanent. Right. Um, so if we could make that available to half of humanity, and I could imagine ways that that could happen, and I talk a little bit about possible scenarios for that. Um, If we could make that available to half of humanity or three quarters of humanity, this world would stunningly change for the better for everyone. Now, people often think that I'm saying, oh, what? He's saying that we're going to just take a pill and be enlightened. And, you know, <laughs> no, I, I sort of am doubting that. We'll, we'll still need meditation. We'll still need what they call view or a certain perspective on what you're going to experience. We impart people with view, a view, uh, a conceptual paradigm. We give you techniques. We build certain skills. But we may be able to provide you with techno boosts that um, – speed up the process by an order of magnitude. So what takes 20 years takes two years, uh, something like that. Sure. That's my happiest thought uh, for this planet. And I love that. A really beautiful way, I think, to bring, uh, bring this full circle here. Um, as I mentioned, there's so much more in the book that uh, we, we just unfortunately don't have time to cover today. I'll have to have you on again another time down the road, and we can dive even deeper into this. because. Sure. We didn't even begin to scratch the surface, but I'm so glad that you took the time to go in depth with what we did cover. I really appreciate that. Um, the book, again, is called The Science of Enlightenment, How Meditation Works. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, uh, anywhere books are sold. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. I've got, here's my copy. Maybe they can. There it is. <laughs> and it's got, um, <clears throat> what's really cool is that it has the uh the golden ratio in the background, which was something that the Greeks came up with. Then it's got the clouds, which is the fractal geometry, which is one of the major innovations of 20th century math. So it sort of has the whole history of math right on the cover. Oh, yeah. I think Sounds True did a wonderful job with that beautiful book. Um, So Shinzen, thank you so very much. Um, Your website and information will all be linked. So anyone that's been listening or watching this interview, um, just scroll down a little bit. Shinzen's website's there where you can learn about um, any of the teachings you're doing. Uh, You have a lot of resources on there, um, all sorts of goodness. So I highly encourage people. And I guess if they're just listening, is is it uh, Shinzen Young? Dot com. I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> or they just changed it. Did they? Uh, well, yeah. So no uh, problem. I would just say uh, Google Shinzen Young and okay. uh, you'll get a lot of things. Sure. But the main one is the home practice program. Okay. That's how they can study with me wherever they are in the world Perfect. because we just pipe it into them. So put in Shinzen Young home practice program is probably the best way to uh, – see uh what's available awesome well shinzen thank you so very much for your time and thank you for the work you're doing in this world i I deeply uh bow to you and appreciate it well great interview and uh someone's waiting outside now to take me to ucla where i'm going to give a lecture on guess what neuroscience and meditation (laughs) (laughs) what a surprise (laughs) well have a great time with that and again thank you so much
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.